0: Welcome to the ACC podcast. My name's Tyler Burch, I'm a minister here at Anacortes Christian Church. We hope our weekly messages are a resource to help you grow spiritually and that they would bring you closer with God and his son, Jesus. If you want more info about ACC, find us on Facebook or check out our website, Christian.church. Enjoy the message. Jesus asked those in the crowd that surrounded him Why are you you so polite with me? You're always saying, yes, sir, and that's right, sir, but never doing a thing that I tell you. These words I speak to you, they're not just mere additions to your life. They're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. Uh, They are foundation words, words to build a life on. If you work the words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who dug deep and laid the foundation of his house on bedrock. When the river burst its banks and it crashed against the house, nothing could shake the house. It was built to last. Just use my words in Bible studies and you don't work them into your life. You're like a dumb carpenter who built his house and skipped the foundation. And so when the swollen river came crashing in, it collapsed like a house of cards. It was a total loss. Jesus concluded his sermon on the mount with that parable. And the context of the parable, it would have been readily understood uh, by the audience that was listening to him by the Sea of Galilee. You see, in that region, in the summertime, the ground was rock solid. It appeared like it was a firm foundation. You could build a house on it. However, appearances are deceiving. You see, when the winter came, the rains came also, and that ground that looked rock hard became the consistency of chocolate pudding. And not only that, but it would cause the Jordan River to swell and cause massive flooding. And so you can just imagine that that would be a recipe for disaster and so nobody that was listening to, to Jesus was actually foolish enough to build without digging down deep into the bedrock sometimes even up to 10 feet uh, I would the thought would have been absurd and so we've talked about parables and we've said that some parables Jesus gave were hard to understand this is not one of those parables uh, it's pretty clear Jesus is saying do what I say and your life is going to be permanently unshakable uh, ignore what I say and your life is like you're like the dupe who built his house on chocolate pudding. Uh, your life will be a complete loss. And, and so the words are so straightforward. The decision looks like a no-brainer. And, and so if this is the case, I've had to ask myself this question over and over this week: Why have I struggled so much this past week with Jesus' words? And why am I continuing to wrestle with? this message that he's given. You want to know what I think, why I'm actually having issues with it? It's because everything that Jesus said to do prior to this parable seems completely upside down to the world that I know and I see around me. And if I'm being completely honest, most of what he said, or at least a lot of what he said, seems completely upside down to me personally. This week, I I couldn't, I couldn't let go of the phrase, this phrase, upside down. Uh, it haunted me. I don't know if you've ever had a phrase like that that just was a song that just kept coming back to you, and you couldn't get rid of it. And this phrase, upside down, it kept haunting me, and it, I, I, I tried to move on, and it kept coming back. And, and so I did what any rational person being mentally stalked by an annoying and unrelenting phrase would do. I Googled it, and this is what I came across. Do we have the picture of that, Kelly. That's that's, that's a real thing. It's crazy. Now, what's even more shocking than that, there's a lot more of these things. I don't know if you're aware of that. I wasn't. Um, There are like over hundreds of upside down houses across the world. Uh, There are upside down houses, upside down restaurants, upside down churches, um, upside down apartment buildings. There are even multiple, I just showed two, upside-down White Houses. Think about that, that. That's a little, bit, a little disturbing. And so I'm, I'm sitting at my computer. Uh, I'm attempting to come to terms with the disturbing number of upside-down houses in the world. And I kind of zone out, and a strange scene begins to play out in my mind, kind of like if you've ever seen the, the Twilight Zone, like a bizarre episode of the Twilight Zone. And so I, I'm zoned out. I find myself standing in the middle of a community named Upside Downia. And I'm surrounded by a society of people who, you can guess, lived in upside-down homes. Upside-down buildings everywhere. Everything you typically find on the floor uh, is on the ceiling. Uh, Tables, chairs, televisions, toilets. Uh, You can imagine the scene. Uh, Imagine trying to live your life on the ceiling, constantly fighting gravity. And how impossible that would be. But, but the citizens of Upside Down, to their credit, they were trying, at least. Uh, it, was, it was hard to watch, to be real honest, because it, it was a struggle. These people were really having a hard time. Now, to their credit, they had made some advancements to improve their quality of life as much as they could. Like suction cup shoes strategically placed handholds. They had seat belts in their chairs to hold them in while they watched their upside-down televisions and ate their upside-down meals in specially packaged uh, containers to keep things from falling out. They had recently designed vacuum-suctioning toilets, which had successfully cut down on some messy situations. Um, and... Even with all these advances, though, life was still incredibly difficult, and so I'm looking at this chaos, and I thought to myself, why don't they just build their houses right side up? I mean, it would fix pretty much all their problems, and so I decided to talk with the city council of Upside Downia. I scheduled a meeting, went to them, talked. Um... And and all I said was, you know, I know I'm only visiting. I just wanted to offer an observation. I believe uh, that will dramatically improve the quality of your life. Have you ever thought about just flipping your houses around? And the stares I got were were, um, a little bit evil. Uh, One of the council members responded, are you crazy? My great, 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 great grandfather built these homes. And establish this community this is how we've always lived and we're gonna keep living this way uh, another council member chimed in you're insane uh, we have no need for that type of crazy upside-down thinking here uh, it's probably best that you just leave and so I left now my dream ended there um, pretty weird huh some of you really hit me like why did we hire this guy <laughs> uh, I promise I'm not crazy um, Obviously, this scenario sounds completely ridiculous, but what if it's not so far-fetched? See, we're about to listen to Jesus describe his kingdom, and the picture he paints seems pretty bizarre. And so I began thinking, what if we're the ones with the upside-down philosophy of life? What if everything that we chase after is humans and everything that we characterize as conventional wisdom Is like upside downia. And Jesus has come and he's brought God's kingdom in order to completely redefine our reality and turn things right side up. If that's true, the question is how are you and I going to respond? And that's the question I want us to consider in our remaining time together. How are you and I going to respond to Jesus' invitation to the kingdom? And so I want to start that process by reading, starting in Luke 6. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. I believe it'll be on the screen for you up here. We're going to start in Luke 6, verse 17. Just some quick context where we're at. Jesus is on a mountain plain. He's surrounded by a large group of his followers. In fact, what Luke tells us is he's just gone up the mountain. He's prayed all night. He's picked his 12 disciples from his group of followers. They've gone up on the mountain and now come back down. And then starting in verse 17, we're told what happens from there. It says, Jesus, he came down with them, with, with his 12 followers, and he stood on a level place. And with a great crowd of his followers, or his disciples, so there's more than just the 12, there's a lot of his followers, and also a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. So they come for two reasons. They come to to hear what he has to say, but also to be healed. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. So imagine with me, this this is a frenzied scene. Uh, The audience, it consists of both committed followers and those that are uncommitted still. Hundreds, I probably would say thousands of people from all over were coming to see Jesus. Many, hopelessly struggling and afflicted with diseases and disorders, and I know that that there are people, there's some of you in here that can relate to that. Just trying, they're just trying to get at Jesus. They're trying to just steal a quick touch of His garment in hopes of having their lives changed and restored. And Jesus gives, and He gives. And he gives without receiving a thing. So imagine you in that spot, hundreds of people asking of you, taking from you without offering anything in return. Like I I get frazzled when two of my kids are asking for something at the same time, all right? Uh, I can't imagine this situation, but Jesus doesn't gripe and he doesn't complain. He simply gives of himself, and I'm assuming he probably gives most likely to the point of exhaustion. There's no telling how long this would have taken, but at some point, Jesus managed to quiet the crowd and began to speak, and he looks at his followers, and he begins to encourage them, and while he's encouraging his followers, he's also extending an invitation to all the fringe people around who haven't quite made that decision. They're still uncommitted, and he extends the invitation we're going to see in a really interesting way. He let them know which of them would be qualified to join his club. Which of them would be qualified to enter his kingdom? He also adds on which of them would not be good fits or good candidates. That's, that's pretty bold. See, Jesus, he provides his listeners with a, a portrait of an ideal kingdom candidate. Luke gives us four qualifications. There's more in Matthew. Of what an individual must possess to be part of Jesus's kingdom, and so I really I just want to hit those four qualifications. If you're a note taker, uh, you can maybe jot some notes down. I'll try to tell you when to do that uh, and list these four things down. But let's just read about them first. I'm in I'm in Matthew or I'm in Luke. I'm sorry, Luke six still, uh, and I'm starting in verse twenty. It says this: Jesus lifted up his eyes. He he looked at his disciples and he said, "Blessed are you." So he's looking straight at his disciples. "Blessed are you." Now, quick. Quick side note, blessed, that term, uh, it's not a term we use a lot, you know, in our culture. Blessed just mi- like really means how lucky or f- you're fortunate. You're in a good spot. We would congratulate somebody. I mean, yeah, yeah, way, you know, you're, that's, that's lucky of you to be there. That's kind of what this is, is getting at. Jesus is getting at. he said, blessed, fortunate are you who are poor. Okay? Yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed, how lucky are you who have been hungry and are still hungry now, okay? For you shall be satisfied. And, and, and fortunate are you, blessed are you who know what it is to weep, for you shall laugh. And then finally he said, okay, and you guys, looking at his disciples, blessed are you, how lucky are you that people hate you and exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice. (laughs) Okay, This is getting bizarre. In that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So quick recap. Ideal candidate for the kingdom. Poor, hungry, sad, despised. Anybody in here fit that category? (laughs) He takes it further, though. And he says, he, he, he said, okay, these, if, if you're in this category, you're not such a good fit. He says, but woe. Now, woe, the same thing. He's going to repeat this word, woe. Woe is, it's not a threat, which is a lot of times how we would take it. Woe is actually like this, it's a condolence. It's an expression of compassionate regret. Like, how terrible. I'm sorry. And this is what he says. He says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And I'm sorry how unfortunate for you who are full and, and have, have eaten and have your stomachs nice and full for you should be hungry. And woe to you who are laughing now for you shall mourn and weep. And then finally, woe to you when people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Is this not like upside downia? Yeah? all over again, right? Jesus' gospel message, it congratulates those the world pities and it pities those the world congratulates. What's going on here? If you're confused, you're not alone. Uh, You might be thinking, do you really have to be poor, hungry, grief-stricken, and despised to get into God's kingdom? Am I excluded if I have a nice house? Uh, If I enjoyed breakfast this morning, if I came to church actually in a good mood, uh, or if I'm liked by people, does that keep me out of the kingdom? Is that what Jesus is saying here? And so I want to investigate this, and I want to do this by just looking at each of these individually. We'll look at the qualification, and then we'll look at the negative counterpart kind of side by side, and we'll see what Jesus is getting at here. And so let's just take the first one. He says, "Uh, blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is for the poor, now he's looking directly at his followers in the audience, people that have not had good news in a really long time. We go back to Luke 4 that I just read, right? He's coming to proclaim good news to people that desperately need it. Poverty itself is not the blessing. The blessing is being empty-handed. That's the first qualification if you're a note taker. The first qualification to be in God's kingdom is empty hands. Jesus is basically saying, hey, there's something unbelievable and amazing that I've brought. I'm offering real life, but you're not gonna be able to grab onto it if your hands are clinging on to other things. But you guys are all in luck because you have nothing in your hands. Your hands are free jesus says woe to you who are rich those of you who are unable to grab hold of the kingdom because you're too busy reaching for earthly treasure is jesus saying it's wrong to be wealthy no i don't believe so but he is saying you're wealthy i'm sorry that you have to carry that off a burden see wealth and possessions make entrance into the kingdom difficult and it's hard to take hold of the kingdom When your hands are full of things. So that begs the question who's wealthy? And without getting into a debate, I would say, compared to the rest of the world and those of Jesus' day for sure, most of us in here are incredibly wealthy. And so, me admitting that just makes my stomach sink even right now because it forces me to ask some really difficult questions of myself Am I living under the tyranny of my possessions? Do I find my security in my Savior or my savings account? Am I living for the kingdom or my comfort level? Am I willing to sacrifice my comfort level to provide a small amount of relief and comfort to those who have none? Finally, what am I clinging to that I need to let go of? I'm honestly struggling with some of those questions right now. Um, All I know is that if I'm unwilling to sacrifice those things that I'm holding on to, then Jesus' response to me is, I'm sorry, you could have had infinitely more, but enjoy what's in your hands while you can because that's your consolation prize. Second qualification. An unfilled stomach with a big appetite. Blessed are you who are hungry, you're going to be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Anyone ever heard of the phrase, I hope you're hungry? Anybody ever said that or heard that? It's usually something we say about holiday time when we're about to have Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. Um, Hunger is a blessing when a feast is coming. Recently, we headed back to Texas for a visit. Uh, anytime we go back to Texas, there's one non-negotiable. Uh, we're going to Mariano's. So you're thinking, like, what is Mariano's? Uh, Mariano's is just the best Mexican food restaurant on the planet. Okay? There's, there is no comparison. Like, I, there, the food here is good. I'm not dissing the food, but it's just incomparable to Mariano's. It's just, you, you know, you can't even compare. And so uh, Typically, our trips, they look like this. We go, and this is literally the order it goes in. We, we get to the airport. We get our bags. We, we leave, and we go straight to Mariano's. I mean, that's what it, literally what it looks like. And uh, so I have a strategy for when we go back to Texas, and that's basically I starve myself. Uh, I, I, I want to be hungry. I mean, I, I want those hunger pains. Um, I'm not filling up on airport snacks, okay? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, peanuts or the little biscotti cookies, those are pretty good. Uh, But they don't even compare to what I know is coming. Um, And any, any space they take up in my stomach is just less space for the pure deliciousness that I know I'm about to have. And so when Jesus says that you're blessed if you're hungry, first of all, he is not trivializing their pain. He's also not saying, okay, well, just leave them hungry. Don't do anything for them. That's not what he's saying. In fact, this this whole sermon is about we need to be feeding the hungry, okay? Um, But what he is saying is this. He he just knows that the hunger pains they're experiencing are nothing when compared to the feast they're about to experience. And I love the way that the message puts it. Uh, the, The message translation says, you're blessed when you're ravenously hungry because then you're ready for the messianic meal to those who are cramming their faces with airplane food, Jesus, I mean, as gently as he can says, it would be terrible if you fill up on that stuff and you're too full to appreciate the feast I've prepared. Put that stuff down. It's not too late. Put it down. It's only gonna end up leaving you hungry and empty anyways. And Jesus, obviously, is not just referring to physical hunger here, but to ultimate reality. I think the, the message, again, gets it right. He sa- it says, it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself. Yourself will not satisfy you for long. And for those who continue gorging themselves on the things of this world, they're going to find that that road will eventually lead to internal emptiness. May bring enjoyment for a moment, but it's not going to give you and I what we need. It's not gonna satisfy the hunger and thirst that we're really trying to quench. It's the question for us is, are we preparing for Jesus' feast? Qualification number three, a discontent heart. You heard it right. A discontent heart. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So does this mean that Jesus wants us to walk around depressed all the time? I think that's the perception that many have, Uh, Billy Joel, anybody familiar with Billy Joel? Probably like one of the most talented songwriters of all time. Uh, He wrote a song called Only the Good Die Young. Really catchy song. If I was Tyler or Mike or Mark, I'd sing it, but I'm not, so you're not gonna hear me sing. Um, But one of the verses speaks to this perception that people have, I think even Christians have, that they tend to associate with following Jesus. This is what he says. They say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Only the good die young. Now, this certainly doesn't describe Jesus. Jesus was like a people magnet. And I will say the ones that were most attracted to him were typically not the religious saints, but the sinners who really liked to have some fun, right? That's, that's who was attracted to Jesus. So obviously Jesus knew how to have some fun. And I firmly believe that, you know, as far as the message that he gives, it's not a downtrodden, downcast message. In fact, as I'm studying the Sermon on the Mount, that's actually been one of the biggest convictions for me. I don't have enough fun. I don't enjoy life the way I ought to. I don't live in the present like I should. That's been a huge conviction for me. But I'll say that that's not the Christ in me. That's the sinner in me who struggles with anxiety and worry. And, and so Jesus has a message. If you're like me in that realm, is stop it. All right? Enjoy the moment. That's, that's just kind of extra, that's getting off, off topic. But the point is, Jesus is not encouraging us to walk around sad and depressed. He doesn't want, he, he doesn't want us to desire He does want us to desire more than this world can offer, though. We, we should be longing for more. We should not be content simply with what the world is offering to us. Now, the world we live in has a lot going for it. Uh, there is beauty and relationships and good food, like we just talked about, and adventure, and we could keep going on, those keeps going on. And these things are all good things, and I think we're supposed to enjoy these things, and ultimately, that enjoyment should actually lead us back to, to praising and thanking the one, the giver who gave them to us, But as good as these things are, there's no doubt that we live in a broken world. Would you agree? It's obvious. And it's possible, and I would even say just from personal experience, even tempting to isolate and distract ourselves from the heartbreaking realities of life around us. We can center our lives solely on these joys and these pleasures that we have access to. And Jesus' warning for us is don't fall into that trap the diseases that plague us, the the suffering that weighs on us, the addictions that enslave us, the evil and the division that divides and destroys us, uh, the, the death that we have to deal with of loved ones should break our hearts. Don't ignore the sad condition of this world. Don't hide from it. It should cause our hearts to ache and to mourn and to long for more. Isolation and distraction, it may bring temporary comfort, but the truth is none of us can hide from the harsh realities of life. None of us are immune to them. And if you live your life like that, like they're not really there, eventually you're gonna be crushed by them. But if you trust and follow Jesus, the promise is you'll be able to stand up to the harsh realities of life in this fallen world. He didn't say be easy, but he said you would be able to stand And what's more than this, not only should we long for a better world, we've actually been called to be part of the solution to turn this upside world right side up. I mean, we can just look back at at Genesis, right? The very first call to humans was, go take my image, your image bearers, go take it outside of the garden and spread it and multiply it to the rest of the world. That was the call. And so for us being transformed back into the image of God, the call is the same take God's image, and spread it through this upside-down world. That's how God's kingdom is established. And so how do we do that? Jesus gives us the answer. He says, be different. He says, live right side up. And now, I'm going to tell you, actually, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to read what Jesus says right side up living looks like. And again, warning, this is going to sound very unnatural, bizarre, and out of touch with reality, but just consider it. I'm in verse 27 of Luke 6. This is what Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now we could just stop there. <laughs> we could spend a, that in itself. When we really stop and think about it, sometimes we just—I just glance over this and read it. Oh, that's nice. Love your enemies, really? Like I've heard, sabotage your enemies. I've heard, wish bad things on your enemies, avoid your enemies. Love your enemies. He goes on, do good to those who hate you. Now, a lot of you might not have people that hate you, but I'm sure you have people that have wronged you. And so he has something for that as well. He says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And then we don't have time to get into all the cultural context of some of this. Then he goes on to say, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from one who takes away your cloak, go ahead and gift wrap your tunic and give that to them as well. Give to everyone who begs of you. And from the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to them, seize the opportunity and do it to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Sinners do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Sinners do that too. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Because again, sinners lend to sinners expecting to get things back. But here's what I want you to do. Right side living, this is what it looks like. Love your enemies, do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great because you, you and you will be sons of the Most High. And then he gives us the answer, why in the world would we do this? For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father's merciful. It takes us back to that beginning scene, right? Jesus gives and gives and gives without getting anything back. I mean, that defined his whole ministry. That defined his sacrifice on the cross. And we've been called to, to imitate that. We've been given the opportunity to imitate that. Now, let me explain real quick, and again, this is a sermon in itself, and so I don't have time to get real deep into it, but the focus of this passage is not about sitting helplessly and passively and taking abuse and being taken advantage of. That is not what this passage is about. I'm not encouraging, like it's like, for someone in an abusive relationship to just take it. That's not what this is saying. It's just the opposite. It's it's and it's a sign of maturity, okay? So like I would be. I would struggle if, if, if my son were getting picked on at school or something like that. I would, you know, uh, sorry, I would just turn the other cheek. You know, I, I don't know how I'd respond to that. That's not necessarily, what Jesus is saying here is for the mature though. He's saying like it's about initiating action and willingly choosing to forfeit your rights. We call that submission in order to turn what was intended to be an act of harm into an opportunity, to an opportunity to extend grace and love. It's weakness. It's not not weakness. It's empowerment. It's turning the tables on the people that are trying to do you harm and and allowing God to change the world. That's what Jesus' entire human existence was about. And the reason it was that way because that's what the Father is about. And and as I was studying it this week, I came across some stuff N.T. Wright wrote on this and it was just too good. I, I just had to include it. So this is what N.T. Wright said about this. He said, The kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think of the best thing that you can do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you and then do it for them. Think of the people to whom you were tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. And I'm thinking, what would possibly motivate someone to behave like this? And Jesus says, because that's what God's like. And Wright goes on, he says, if you lived in a society where everyone believed in this God, then there wouldn't be any violence, there wouldn't be any revenge, there wouldn't be any divisions of class or caste. Property and possessions wouldn't be nearly as important as making sure your neighbor was all right. Imagine if even a few people around you took Jesus seriously and lived like that, life would be exuberant and different and astonishing and people couldn't help but stare. He, he equates it to flowers coming up through concrete. For, I mean, evangelism, we wouldn't have to try to come up with things to say. People would be like, what's wrong with you? And we would have to explain, all right? This, our world would be different. And that's God's plan for bringing his kingdom. Finally, the final qualification we'll talk about for being in Jesus' group is you must have discerning eyes and ears. He um, says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I mean, kind of short summary of that is you're in good hands. You know, if, if this is what's happening to you, then you're on the right path because that's how God's prophets have always been treated. So you're doing good. But woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their forefathers did to the false prophets. False prophets, they just said whatever people wanted to hear. They were people pleasers. This is not, it's not endorsing if, if you're well-liked and you're worried about it. It's good that you're well-liked. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. The idea here, though, is whose approval are we really valuing the most? And that's where discerning eyes and discerning ears come into play. You see, the the decisions we make often involve the choice to to take something greater at the expense of sacrificing something less. Um, Would you agree? Right? I mean, so for example, when when I chose to get married, I gave up certain freedoms, but the choice was well worth it, all right? When I had kids, uh, activities I used to prioritize suddenly were no longer a priority when making choices about how I was gonna spend my time. Uh, As humans, we gravitate towards choosing things that we deem most valuable. My choices reveal a lot about what I value. And so we come to Jesus' day And the decision to follow him, it typically involved the choice to be disowned by family and friends, and you were kicked out of the synagogue, which was really your lifeline to the community. And so you can imagine how this would affect your social life, it would affect your religious life, your work life. I mean, when people took on Jesus' identity, it truly meant sacrificing your own. And what would cause someone to make this type of radical decision? Discerning eyes and ears. The question we have to answer boils down to whose opinion of us matters most? Whose whose applause and affirmation am I really seeking? Whose do I value? And so Jesus gives us really two promises. He he guarantees those who follow him, first of all, it's gonna cost you something to think that it won't is naive. But he also promises that the reward is well worth the cost. And so uh, as I've looked at Jesus' message With new eyes this week, I've continually contemplated that cost. At times, to be real honest, it's felt like a weight. Um, Because the truth is, I look at what Jesus asked and I'm so far from it that uh, from the standard he requires that it's uh, it's discouraging, to be real honest. In fact, there were times I didn't even want to give this message this week because I felt very unqualified. Um, However, in the midst of my internal struggle, I was refreshed by two things. And I I wanna just close by sharing those two things with you in hopes that maybe they encourage you too. So here's the first one. First is the fact that, that the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus is a marathon and not a sprint. Christ's character is not formed overnight. It's formed one step at a time, one decision at a, at a time, and as Jesus works on us in one area and we mature, then he brings something else to light. He understands this, he knows this. And so as we, as we seek to follow the call that he's given us, as we seek to be what he calls truly human, the places that we fall short, the blood of Jesus covers that incredible chasm between what I am and what I should be. And so we thank God for Grace. Second is the call to Jesus is certainly, it's it's a warning, obviously, right? I mean, there's warning in this text, uh, and it's often easy to lose sight of the other side of it, though, that we get so focused on the warning that we forget that this is an invitation and an opportunity uh, to life, to life beyond anything that we could ever imagine or hope to experience, and So it got me thinking kind of this idea of within our culture there It's there's a word that's recently been coined or brought into our vocabulary called FOMO I don't know if you've heard this or not. It's an acronym. It stands for the fear of missing out um, It is It's a condition that has plagued humans forever, but we've just really kind of identified it and, and You know, it's this anxiety that we feel when we think we're missing out on some rewarding experience or potentially losing some opportunity. It's a lot of times it's a negative thing, right? Especially with social media, like we fear, like we're missing something, and so we live with anxiety. We don't live in the present. Sometimes it can be a good thing. Right now, it's like the, the best parenting strategy Sherry and I have for Micah because Micah's not always the most compliant child, but uh, we can use this. The other day, he, was, uh, he didn't want to brush his teeth. I called him from across the house. Hey, Micah, come brush your teeth. He said, no, I don't want to. I said, that's fine. I'm not, I've been wanting to use your Paw Patrol toothbrush. It's okay. And he kept screaming, no, yeah, I want to I brush my teeth. Yeah. Fear of missing out, right? <laughs> we all experience it. And although it can be negative, I would say in this situation, Jesus brings it out as don't miss out on this. He's, it's an invitation I'm offering something that's worth experiencing, something that beyond what you could ever imagine, it's an opportunity, it's an invitation. Don't get stuck. Don't be like that dumb carpenter who chose to build without a foundation. I'm offering you life. Take it. In principle, there's only two responses to Jesus' message, either wholehearted commitment to the kingdom of God with all the hardships that it might bring, or a continued pursuit of the way of the world, putting present satisfaction before the will of God and and its ultimate rewards. And that's the question that every single one of us in here has to decide which path are we going to follow. Let's pray. Just a reminder that we love you and God loves you and that you have a place here at Anacortes Christian Church. During the summer months, we only have one service at 10 a.m., But on September 15th, we return to our normal schedule of two services, one at 8.15 and another at 10 a.m. We hope to see you soon.